Take your Bibles and turn to 1 John chapter 2, verse 19 now. And in verse 19 we read, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out that they might be manifest, that they were not all of us. They went out from us, but they were not ever of us, is solid proof that those who depart from the faith were never really of it. Apostates, for a time, can and will remain with true believers, but there must come a time when their false professions of faith becomes manifest. Impure motives, while in religion, are not enough to keep men faithful to it their entire lives. Like with Judas, though he walked with the Lord Jesus for a number of years, the truth is he never truly was subject to him. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 9, we read, A little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. Even a small amount of religious hypocrisy will affect the growth of any true Christian assembly. By the Lord allowing the departure of those who once labeled themselves as Christians, the influence they once had or could have had in the true church of Christ is greatly diminished. Practically speaking, when men depart from Christ, whom they once professed to follow, all real authority to influence others remaining loyal to him ends. To understand apostasy properly, one needs to know that, one, those who leave the faith were once considered part of the church. They took on the habits of conversion, but were never truly converted. Two, God allows departure so that the pretenders might be fully known, resulting in removing much confusion as to what true faith really is. Three, by the counterfeit's exodus, the church is more able to grow in the divine qualities of love and spiritual unity. When schism is removed, even if it remains undetected by most, then harmony and peace is more freely enabled to flourish in Christ's true church. It has always been a practical military tactic in warfare to try and infiltrate an enemy and cause as much internal disruption as is possible. This Satan does by planting those with false motives among those whose hearts are pure towards the Savior. In the spiritual realm, planting tares with the wheat is a common devilish practice. And in Matthew chapter 13, verse 25, you read, But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. Barnes on this verse, While men slept, his enemy came, that is, in the night, when it could be done without being seen. An enemy came and scattered bad seed on the new plowed field, perhaps before the good seed had been harrowed in. Sowed tares. By tares is probably meant a degenerate kind of wheat or the darnel grassing growing in Palestine. In its growth and form, it has a strong resemblance to genuine wheat, but it either produces no grain or that of a very inferior and hurtful kind. Probably, it comes near to what we mean by cheese. It was extremely difficult to separate it from the genuine wheat on account of its similarity while growing. The tear abounds all over the East and is a great nuisance to the farmer. It resembles the American cheat, but the head does not droop like cheat, nor does it branch out like oats. The grain also is smaller and is arranged along the upper part of the stalk which stands perfectly erect. 
The taste is bitter, and when eaten separately, or even when diffused in ordinary bread, it causes dizziness, and often acts as a violent emetic. Barn door fowls also become dizzy from eating it. In short, it is a strong sulfuric poison, and must be carefully winnowed and picked out of the wheat grain by grain, before grinding, or the flour is not healthy. Even the farmers, who in this country generally weed their fields, do not attempt to separate the one from the other. They would not only mistake good grain for them, but very commonly the roots of the two are so intertwined that it is impossible to separate them without plucking up both. Both, therefore, must be left to grow together until the time of harvest. The land and the book thus tears aptly represented hypocrites in the church strongly resembling in their experience and in some respects their lives it is impossible to distinguish them from genuine Christians. Nor can they be separated until it is done by the great searcher of hearts at the day of judgment. An enemy the devil hath done it, and nowhere has he shown profounder cunning or done more to adulterate the purity of the gospel. End quote. Whenever men depart from anything, there is some place more pleasing to them that they purpose to go. In regards to faith, when men depart from it, there is no place to go but back to the world. There are but two forms of government that men can choose to align themselves with. The first is that government which the God of this world, Satan, sets the parameters on how men can live while in it. In this worldly institution, much freedom is promised, whereby men can not only live as they will, with no judgment, but are actually encouraged to embrace self-will and self-government. In Satan's world, self-love and self-will are much more preferred than love for God and subjection to divine will. Those who love the world and are willing to depart from the faith for it ultimately reveal themselves as preferring human government or the government of self, man, and Satan over the heavenly rule of God. No rule, free rule, is embraced over divine rule and obedience to God's commandments. Ultimately, when men leave the faith and the body of believers who still practice it, this reveals they never really possess true piety at all. And though they may have walked amongst the saved, their love for the world reveals that they were never ready to abandon it for God. And in Luke chapter 14, verse 13, we read, So likewise, whosoever he be of you, that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. Ellicott on this verse, Whosoever he be of you, that forsaketh not, better that renounceth not. This then was the immediate lesson which the company of eager disciples had to learn to say goodbye to their all, whatever that might be, fishing nets and hired servants, or great possessions, or ease and safety, or besetting sins, or fancied righteousness, all had to be renounced. The word forsake is that which was afterwards used in the baptismal formula. I renounce the devil and all his works and the same as that which is translated bidding farewell, end quote. It is this standard of leaving all to follow Christ, which is the true test of discipleship. It is a standard which Jesus Christ himself set, 
and should not be lowered by men who themselves have not enough love for divine things to keep it. To be saved by the Son of God, then a man must be willing to leave everything for him. There can be no compromise on this truth if salvation is truly desired. Barnes on this verse, Every man who becomes a follower of Jesus should calmly and deliberately look at all the consequences of such an act and be prepared to meet them. Two, men in other things act with prudence and forethought. They do not begin to build without a reasonable prospect of being able to finish. They do not go to war when there is every prospect that they will be defeated. Three, religion is a work of soberness, of thought, of calm and fixed purpose. And no man can properly enter on it who does not resolve by the grace of God to fulfill all its requirements and make it the business of his life. Four, we are to expect difficulties in religion. It will cost us the mortification of our sins and a life of self-denial and a conflict with our lusts and the enmity and ridicule of the world. Perhaps it may cost us our reputation or possibly our lives and liberties and all that is dear to us, but we must cheerfully undertake all this and be prepared for it all. Five, if we do not deliberately resolve to leave all things, to suffer all things that may be laid on us, and to persevere to the end of our days in the service of Christ, we cannot be his disciples. No man can be a Christian who, when he makes a profession, is resolved after a while to turn back to the world. Nor can he be a true Christian if he expects that he will turn back. If he comes not with a full purpose always to be a Christian, if he means not to persevere by the grace of God through all hazards and trials and temptations, if he is not willing to bear his cross and meet contempt and poverty and pain and death without turning back, he cannot be a disciple of the Lord Jesus, end quote. Ultimately, when men leave the faith, they return to the world they came out of. There is no other place to go than this, and apostates are more than comfortable with their choice. None also would leave the Lord and the company of believers faithful to him. If they realize, like Peter and the other disciples, that Jesus alone has the words that lead to eternal life. Barnes on 1 John 2.19, referencing back to that. They went out from us, from the church. That is, they had once been professors of the religion of the Savior, though their apostasy showed that they never had any true piety. John refers to the fact that they had once been in the church, perhaps to remind those to whom he wrote that they knew them well and could readily appreciate their character. It was a humiliating statement that those who showed themselves to be so utterly opposed to religion had once been members of the Christian church. But this is a statement which we are often compelled to make. But they were not of us. That is, they did not really belong to us or were not true Christians. This passage proves that these persons, whatever their pretensions and professions, may have been, were never sincere Christians. The same remark may be made of all who apostatize from the faith and become teachers of error. They never were truly converted, 
never belonged really to the spiritual church of Christ. But they went out that they might be manifest, that they were not all of us. It was suffered or permitted in the providence of God that this should occur in order that it might be seen and known that they were not true Christians or in order that their real character might be developed. It was desirable that this should be done in order that the church might be purified from their influence, in order that it might not be responsible for their conduct or reproached on account of it, in order that their real character might be developed and they might themselves see that they were not true Christians. In order that, being seen and known as apostates, their opinions and conduct might have less influence than if they were connected with the church. In order that they might themselves understand their own true character and no longer live under the delusion opinion that they were Christians and were safe, but that, seeing themselves in their true light, they might be brought to repentance, end quote. 1 John chapter 2, verse 20 now. But you have an unction from the Holy One, and you know all things. In contrast to those who are never true followers of Christ, and depart from the fellowship of the godly, are true saints, who have as a gift from God the anointing of the Holy Spirit. This anointing imparts both spiritual wisdom and knowledge to its recipients. The first steps to hell in the beginning always look like a path to heaven. Thus, for men to be destroyed, they must first be deceived. And it is here that God's Holy Spirit provides discernment between the spirit of truth and spirits of error, masquerading as it. It is this spiritual wisdom, which source is the Holy Spirit, that allows Christians to know the true nature of Christ's religion. This divinely imparted spiritual knowledge not only makes God known, but also provides sufficient discernment as to where God's true spirit abides and where it does not. The Jameson Fawcett Brown Bible on this verse, those anointed of God in Christ alone can resist those anointed with the spirit of Satan. Antichrist, who would sever them from the Father and from the Son. Believers have the anointing spirit from the Father also, as well as from the Son, even as the Son is anointed therewith by the Father. Hence, the Spirit is the token that we are in the Father and in the Son. Without it, a man is none of Christ. The material engine of costliness ingredients poured on the head of priests and kings typified this spiritual engine, derived from Christ the head to us, his members. We have no share in him as Jesus, except we become truly Christians, and so to be in him as Christ, anointed with that unction from the Holy One. The Spirit poured on Christ, the head, is by him diffused through all the members, end quote. Verse 21 now. I have not written unto you because you know not the truth, but because you know it and that no lie is of the truth. The apostle knew that whom he was writing to were those knowledgeable of the truth. Because of the Spirit's anointing, error and lies had become visible and therefore could not deceive as they once were able to do. Barnes on this verse, Error often appears plausible. It seems to be adapted to relieve the mind of many difficulties which perplex 
and embarrass it on the subject of religion. It seems to be adapted to promote religion. It seems to make those who embrace it happy. And for a time, they apparently enjoy religion. But John says that however plausible all this may be, however much it may seem to prove that the doctrines thus embraced are of God, it is a great and vital maxim that no error can have its foundation in truth, and of course, that it must be worthless, end quote. Verse 22 now. Who is a liar but he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist, that denieth the Father and the Son. Denieth that Jesus is the Christ. The word for Christ is Christos. Strong concordance defines the word as the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ. By this we can see that to deny Christ is in fact to deny the Messiah. The central truth in recognizing Jesus as Messiah is both belief and subjection to the power and lordship God has said is now his. There are two distinct elements in recognizing Jesus Christ's true person. One, that he is God's appointed ruler of the world in the form of the Messiah. That his right to rule the world stems from his unmistakable relationship with God as God's only begotten son. To recognize Jesus Christ truly, we must come to know both his authority and his divinity. His authority stems from the fact that he is God's promised Messiah. His divinity resides in the reality that he is God's only begotten son, proven by his resurrection from the dead. And in Romans chapter 1, verse 4, we read, And declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. To not recognize these two truths is to be antichrist. It is therefore not nearly enough to know Jesus as a mere historical figure. This is insufficient for salvation, because to be saved by God, the power, authority, right, and supremacy of the Son of God must be both believed in and submitted to. In Acts 2.36 we read, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made the same Jesus, whom ye crucified, both Lord and Christ. He is Antichrist that denieth the Father and the Son. When men deny the Son and His purposed authority over their lives, they simultaneously deny the Father. The Father and Son are one. Thus, to reject Christ is to reject the Father. There is no ambiguity on this point. No bond also is more important to be held in Christianity than that which exists between the Father and the Son. If Christ is removed and is deemed unessential in coming to know the Father, then imagination is all that is left to try and perceive God and His will for man. Without the Son of God's light revealing the true essence of God, God's ways, judgments, and purposes for man would forever remain a mystery. And in Mark chapter 4, verse 11, we read, And he said, Jesus said unto them, Unto you it is given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. But unto them that are without, all these things are done in parables. Ultimately, if men reject the Son of God, they reject the very one sent to reveal God. And by doing so, God is rejected in the process. Denial of the Son is, without exception, denial of the Father. The principle of recognizing Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, is critical in order to gain salvation from Him. 
It was this belief that Peter held which led him to become one of Jesus' disciples. And in Matthew chapter 16, verse 13, we read, And when Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. Peter's recognition of Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah, the Son of the living God, reveals that he knew the true divine nature and authority given to the Son. Christ and Lord cannot be separated and are commonly used together in Scripture to emphasize Jesus' exalted position in the earth. Luke chapter 2, verse 11 now. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. The Cambridge Bible on this verse, Christ the Lord, God hath made that same Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ, Acts 2.36. Christ or anointed is the equivalent of Messiah. We preach Christ Jesus the Lord. 2 Corinthians 4.5 No one can say that Jesus is Lord but by the Holy Ghost. 1 Corinthians 12.3 End quote. 1 John chapter 2, verse 23 now. Whosoever denieth a son, the same hath not the Father. He that acknowledgeth the Son hath the Father also. Whosoever denieth a Son, the same hath not the Father. To deny the Son is to deny His authority over your life. It is to not submit to His word and not follow His person. It is to foolishly believe that we can be saved by God without yielding to His Son. Yet there are none who deny the Son who have any true relationship with the Father. In the Son, God has made Himself known. Consequently, to reject and or deny Him is to reject the very one whom God hath sent to reconcile sinners unto Himself. 2 Corinthians 5.19 To wit that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto Himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. It is therefore inevitable that those who deny the Son deny the Father, though the unsaved in the world will aggressively dispute this fact. Barnes on 1 John 2.23 Whosoever denieth the Son, the same hath not the Father, that is, has no just views of the Father, and has no evidence of His friendship. It is only by the Son of God that the Father is made known to people, and it is only through Him that we can become reconciled to God and obtain evidence of his favor, end quote. He that acknowledgeth the Son hath the Father also. When there is an acceptance of the Son of God and a genuine belief in his heavenly identity, then it is certain that true relationship with God has begun. Reception of Christ also has its, its reward being given power by him to become a son of God. And in John chapter 1, verse 12, we read, But as many as received him, Jesus, to them he gave power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Understandably, it is the Son of God who provides the privilege of being brought into the family of God. 
through Christ and Christ alone are men made to become sons of God themselves. And by this it can be said that they hath the Father. Barnes on John 1.12. That to be a child of God is a privilege, far more so than to be a child of any human being, though in the highest degree rich or learned or honored. Christians are therefore more honored than any other persons. God gave them this privilege. It was not by their own works or desires. It is because God chose to impart this blessing to them. This favor is given only to those who believe on him, end quote. It is the act of being born again through regeneration that makes men fit for heaven and children of God. He that acknowledgeth the Son and is therefore baptized by him has been given the spirit of the Son, confirming adoption into the family of God. Galatians 4, 6, And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Barnes on 4, 6, And because you are sons, as a consequence of your being adopted into the family of God and being regarded as his sons, it follows as a part of his purpose of adoption that his children shall have the spirit of the Lord Jesus. End quote. Verse 24 now. Let that therefore abide in you, which you have heard from the beginning. If that which you have heard from the beginning shall remain in you, ye also shall continue in the Son and in the Father. Once made a Son of God, a person must remain loyal to his calling for true fellowship to be maintained with both the Father and the Son. There is no place in Scripture, nor should anything it can be found, which allows for unfaithfulness after conversion. He who has been made a son of God through Christ must maintain both belief and obedience to Christ's words and Christ's spirit in order for fellowship with God to be continued. There is no second renewal nor another regeneration that God can provide for any who when once exposed to the Holy Spirit walk away from it and return to their previous course of living. This is also why there is no such thing as once a Christian, always a Christian. If Christ's words and his authority over the soul is abandoned, to make Jesus Christ the Lord of your life is to make him the ultimate authority in it. Consequently, to desert from his rule is to forfeit the salvation offered by him. And in Luke chapter 9, verse 62, we read, And Jesus said unto him, No man, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. The Jameson Fawcett Brown Bible on this, no man. As plowing requires an eye intent on the furrow to be made, and is marred the instant one turns about, so will they come short of salvation who prosecute the work of God with a distracted attention and divided heart. Though the reference seems chiefly to ministers, the application is general. The expression looking back has a manifest reference to Lot's wife. Genesis 19.26. It is not actual return to the world, but a reluctance to break with it. End quote. 